Hey folks, with me today, Caitlin Rother, New York Times bestselling author or co-author of 14 books, including Dead Reckoning, Hunting Charles Manson, Secrets, Lies, and Shoelaces, Naked Addiction, then no one can have her. I'll take care of you and poisoned love. So many of these titles. And then to boot, coming up April 27th of next year, 2021, Death on Ocean Boulevard, Inside the Coronado Mansion Case. Hi, Caitlin. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Not at all. So you have a very elaborate background in the genre of what you do. And I know we have authors that write mystery and, you know, the mystery buffs are going to go follow mystery. Your genre in particular is seems like it's really more based upon crime novel or crime. Can we talk a little bit about your genre, how you came to it, and maybe how it differs from what other people might think of as a traditional mystery? Most of what I write is narrative nonfiction crime. So what that means is in order for me to get a book contract, generally, there has to be a death. And so most of the time it's a murder and I'm not going to get a contract unless there's a, a conviction, some kind of court ruling. So I started out when I was at the newspaper at the Union Tribune here in San Diego as a, you know, mostly government politics reporter. And I started working on this case on the Kristen Rossum case where I got some tips from my beat sources essentially. And I ended up, you know, kind of getting really interested in this story and, Thankfully, the court reporter allowed me to come and cover the trial, which is not how it's normally done. You know, that was his beat. But since I had started writing stories about the case because of my sources, he, he let me do it. And so that kind of started me off with, with the true crime. But my first book that I ever wrote was a mystery, a novel. And it took me a really, really long time trying to get it published. I could not get it published because... It's one of those chicken and egg things. You have to start somewhere. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll put that on a shelf and I'll, I'll try writing nonfiction since that's what I do professionally. And so I finally got my first book published, which was on that first case. And then finally, after getting another couple books under my belt published, I was able to get that novel published. And that's a crime, crime fiction, and it's called Naked Addiction. So here we are, and I thought, well, you know, I love writing fiction, but the true crime books that I write actually read like fiction. So I use fiction techniques to write nonfiction. And so it, it's all true. I don't make anything up. I don't embellish anything. Because if I start changing things, then it's fiction. And I'm very strict about that. So it's not one of these inspired by deals. <laughs> you know, it is the truth. Truth is, is a whole other topic of debate because, you know, everybody has their own truth. But I, you know, I, I use facts and evidence and I, I lay it out. I let the reader kind of decide. But over time, you know, I, I really wanted to get back to the, to the fiction writing, but I, I just wasn't that good at it. So I had to write a bunch more nonfiction to learn about how do detectives talk? How do they really investigate homicides? How do they investigate staged suicides and staged homicides. And so after I've had a few of those books under my belt, that led me to the book that's coming out next year, which is actually a death case because it has been deemed a suicide by the authorities. And I'm writing a sequel to my fiction. 
So looking at your work, which is nonfiction based, in other words, as a crime writer, because you've had access to these true crime stories, how does it differentiate for somebody who enjoys maybe a whodunit in the traditional sense of a mystery? Because we do have mystery fans. What's the differentiation then for the crime writing that you do? Is this more a long arc of a tale of true crime and kind of just really gets into the nitty gritty and the meat of the real detail of what happened in, in most of these uh, books that you've written? Yeah, I mean, essentially, like I said, it's written like a novel. So it, it, it has scenes, it has characters talking to each other, but I don't make anything up. And I have to be really strict about it because it has to be completely accurate and it has to be also fair and balanced. So it reads like a mystery novel and it has a lot of suspense in it. So even though you think you know how things are going to turn out, I make sure that there are nuggets of new materials and new details that have not been released. You know, because people say, oh, I saw that on TV. I already know that story. So my job and my challenge is to do really good, deep, comprehensive research so that you'll be getting new information all the way through the book. And you'll be like, oh, I thought I knew what happened, but I didn't know all of this. And now I see everything in a totally new light. I have been compared to Anne Rule, who was like the queen of true crime. And she's written, I don't know how many books. And I've always been next to her on the shelf. And she's always taken up like <laughs> two shelves. And I started out with my one little book. And slowly I started getting more books. And I'm up to, uh, this will be my 14th next year. But I don't know how to say how, to, how, how else it differs because it's cozy mysteries. Those are completely different because there's not that much detail. So there's police procedures with mysteries. There's all different types of crime novels. So my novel that I already wrote, Naked Addiction, is not really a police procedural because when I first wrote a novel, a crime novel, I didn't really know what the police procedures really were. So it was more character-based, more plot-based. The one I'm working on now, I have a much better handle on the police procedures. And so now you could probably consider it more of a police procedural and that's under contract as well. And it'll be coming out hopefully next year sometime. So you, Caitlin, are a Pulitzer Prize nominee. And kind of what brought you to this point is that you have so many years working as an investigative reporter at the daily newspapers, a variety of them around the nation. You were doing that for 20 years mm -hmm. before you decided to write books full time. You've been published across the board. At one point, you were with the Los Angeles Times, the San Diego Union Tribune, of course, the Chicago Tribune has carried your work, the Washington Post. Boston Globe, on and on, The Daily Beast. Can we touch a little bit about your backstory? How does somebody decide one day, gee, I think I'll go to work at a newspaper, bang on the door and see if I can become the investigative crime journalist and get into all these facts from all of these supplies at downtown? When I was a senior in college, I went to UC Berkeley and I was majored in psychology. I started deciding I better get my life together and I went into the career center and I couldn't find anything that was interesting to me other than an internship at a radio station. So KGO radio, talk radio was this consumer reporter. And so I went and applied and got a job there. I was supposed to be helping gather information and take calls and stuff, but she realized that I actually was smarter than that and had some talent in this. And so I started helping her report stories. So that's actually how I got introduced to that. I took a journalism class and I started writing for the Daily Cal at the college, but at the time it was also the only paper in Berkeley itself in the city. 
So I was writing stories. I had like the Wall Street Journal reporter actually was in town for something, covering something that I had covered and called me up and asked me for my sources. I mean, it was kind of bizarre, but so I started out going, oh, well, this is fun. But I had like $100 in the bank and I needed to get a job. (laughs) So I went to work for a cruise line. I worked in corporate communications and I was miserable. So I applied to journalism school. I got into three of the four colleges that I applied to and I went to Northwestern Medill and basically learned how to do journalism and start applying for work. And I ended up in a tiny town in Western Massachusetts. So in those days, it was really hard to break into journalism. You had to go someplace really small in the middle of nowhere and work your way up. Today, it's very different because there are so many fewer jobs, but everybody's really young and they they move up much faster. I see people on TV who are so young and I kind of wonder how much experience do they really have and they're being asked for their opinions. And so, you know, there's a lot of criticism of the media today and I jump on the bandwagon. It's still really necessary. I think the reason we are where we are in this country with so much ignorance and anti-science and all this fake news nonsense is all because I believe the media has just been completely diminished and demolished in size and in scope. And we need good journalism. And so that's where I come from. I went into it for idealistic reasons. I wanted to right wrongs and put out the truth. And so that's still where I am today. I just couldn't do it at newspapers anymore because there wasn't any room in the newspaper. I was always writing things that were too long. Even today, I'm always writing too long. I'm always having to cut. So now I go... I'm at 120,000 words at my, in my novel. I need to cut 20,000 words. That's a lot <laughs> to cut. <laughs> yeah, you can't just take Microsoft Word and just go ahead and just eliminate the word count, set it but to I, scale. Right, but I was not a crime reporter. I was a politics and government reporter, and that's my background. So when I approach a case, when I choose a case, so let's just take Death on Ocean Boulevard, there often is a, an aspect where there's a question of whether the government agency, which in this case, there's two of them, the medical examiner's office and the sheriff's department, did their job properly. And so when I'm, you know, when you're looking at an investigation that's being challenged as flawed or incomplete as, as it is in this case, and, you know, my very first book, Poison Love, again, the reason I came, got involved in that is because I was a government reporter and I was covering it from the aspect of government incompetence. So basically they had a toxicologist in the medical examiner's office who was stealing drugs because they weren't stored properly. And she took them home and she used them to sedate and poison her husband with them and then staged a suicide scene. And then she convinced her boss, the medical examiner, to do some shoddy autopsy. Of course, he didn't know what had happened. And so by the time they had the autopsy, he'd already had all of his organs removed because she had him signed up as an organ donor. So, I mean, from the very beginning, I've always had my background as a government reporter looking for wrongdoing and, and negligence and incompetence as part of how I approach my cases. And that's that's been the case in a number of my other books where there have been flawed investigations. And when the police do a good job, I definitely focus on that as well. So I'm not just looking for cases where they did something wrong, but I do find that interesting. 
It sounds like just from what you've described in the premise of the one true story and the book that you've woven, truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, that was an amazing, compelling story. And yet there it is based in reality of what happened. Well, and that's, those are the ones I pick, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like the gruesome, bloody, I mean, I have written a couple of those, but I, you know, there was one book, it's called Body Parts. I spent nine months in the head of this killer who tortured and raped these troubled women that he picked up. He was a trucker. And his first one, he cut her up into pieces, you know, and I'm like, I don't really want to write about stuff like that. There, there are some true crime authors, you asked how my stuff's different. There are some true crime authors who want to do serial killer books. They want to focus on that kind of stuff. And to me, it's too dark. I don't like torture. I don't like mixing sex and violence. I don't like children being harmed and killed or tortured. I don't, I don't, I don't want to stomach that. I don't want to write a book. I don't want to read. And so after I finished Body Parts, I just said, I don't ever want to go back. It was this dark, dark place I had. I think it literally went into my body. I was had some chronic pain and it, it's just not someplace I want my head to be. So I try to focus on cases that a lot of them focus on addiction, uh, mental illness. I want to try to lessen the stigma, but help us understand how people are flawed and how we can protect ourselves from people that are not who they seem to be. And so that's kind of a common thread in the stories I choose. Nice, kind of fodder for societal review. Given the content and context and so many of your titles and where it does seem to go in terms of righting wrongs or getting into the social analysis or commentary, it's been said by a few people that probably your most controversial work or your most controversial book was Lost Girls. Is there a particular reason that Lost Girls resonates with your readers or with critics as probably being most controversial? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I was about to get to that one. So that one I chose because I live here in San Diego, that where it, where it happened, and I lived through the emotional roller coaster that our community was experiencing in the very early stages of that case. So Amber Dubois was a 14-year-old from Escondido who disappeared, and her mother was very actively trying to get her into the media and keep the case alive, get the sheriff's department and Escondido police to search for her, but they initially thought that she was a runaway. They didn't really take it that seriously. There were some issues with the way that the mom was criticizing the police, and it was just didn't really go that smoothly. So they didn't find her. They looked, but they you know, were late. It's starting and they didn't, I think they thought there was something else going on. Didn't believe the mom necessarily that she was a runaway. So anyway, she ended, Amber ended up on the cover of People magazine when her mom kept going on TV. But her mom has this pretty strong personality that kind of rubbed some of the authorities the wrong way. And they told me that privately. Um, then, you know, a year later, Chelsea King disappears. She went running on the trails along Lake Hodges which is a, um, it's uh, between Rancho Bernardo and Escondido. So it's pretty near where Amber disappeared, but it's, it's these pretty suburban, but not an urban area. It's pretty suburban. So there's, you know, it's open, it's green, but there are homes around. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like big open country. It's certainly very uh, rural in many ways with a beautiful lake in the middle of it. And kind of what I've seen is kind of, for the listeners, kind of picture cabins in the woods around a lake. 
kind of an area. It's, it's a big trail area too. So there's this this network of trails that go around the lake. So she she would go running there and she was a very good girl, you know, good student from Poway. Her parents, I don't know that I would say they were wealthy, but they were, you know, I think they were comfortable. And, you know, she normally was home at a certain time and she didn't come home. So they tracked her by her phone and they went and found her car and found her cell phone was still in the car and some of her clothes were in the car where she had changed to go running. And so they knew that she was somewhere there. So this time the sheriff's department was right on it. They started looking for her. So the cases were just handled very differently. And then the police were much, the sheriff's department um, really, I think, liked the King family better. And so long story short, it was, there was a lot of emotion, everybody came out to look for Chelsea. It was amazing. It was like so many people got involved in this case and wanted to find her and it went global, viral. I mean, she was, her face was everywhere. Her, there were missing posters, flyers, even in my gym down in Mission Valley, which is a good 20, 30 minute drive away. And I just watched this whole thing and I watched how the entire community had this hope to find this promising, talented young girl and Within a few days, they found her panties and, and tested for DNA. And John Gardner, who was a sex offender who had been in prison, his DNA were, was also on these panties and his DNA was in the database. So they immediately arrested him. So that was in just a matter of like four days. And then the entire community got angry. So it went from hope and we can't wait to find her. We really hope we find her to this anger that he must have killed her but they hadn't found, found her body yet. So it took a couple more days, they found her body. And so I watched all that. I wrote about it for the Daily Beast and I it was so soon after body parts that I didn't really think I wanted to write. And I don't write about, like I said, I don't write about children being killed. But this was a 14 year old and a 16, 17, I can't remember if she's 16 or 17, but you know, I, not children, but it was gonna be, I'm like, do I really wanna do this? But I got involved emotionally myself in this case. So long story short, I really felt like this was an opportunity to figure out what happened so that, you know, mo mothers and families could protect their teenagers from predators like this. So I thought, okay, what makes a sexual predator? I don't really know anything about it. It's not a subject that people want to talk about. We don't want to think about these people, but they're out there and we can't, we have to acknowledge that and we need to know what happened here. So I dug into this and Amber's mother had her own book that she was working on, so she didn't want to cooperate. And I thought, okay, that's fine. The dad didn't want to cooperate, but you know, he basically told me that. The grandmother was thinking about it. So I thought, okay, you know, it's hard for parents sometimes to, especially when they're the victims are, you know, younger like that. And I didn't think anything of it. The King family did not want to talk to me at all. They had a a liaison person who I spoke with, but I was never able to present my case on why I thought this book was important to write. I wanted to figure out what went wrong and if there was anything that could be corrected. And that's that part of it. And so I did. I, I, I went dug deep. It was a very difficult story to write because it never went to trial. And so I had to be really enterprising. And as it turned out, I was able to convince his mother to cooperate with me because he wanted to make something good out of this too because he said something's wrong with me i want to know what it is i want you to scan my brain i want you to figure out what happened and why this happened and and i said to her look let's take a tragedy and let's see if we can make something good out of this let's see if we can really educate people and she was a psychiatric nurse and she agreed to that 
It was a difficult thing for her. She didn't realize how hard it was going to be to talk about her completely dysfunctional past and her family, but that was his story, was her story as well. So I was able to go into this and bring out, you know, the backstory of how he became who he was and why he did what he did. And, and he and I agreed. I just thought for the good of everyone, we don't want to know specifically what he did to those girls because no one wants to read that. So we just talked about the why and how did it get like that and, and what happened to him afterwards and where did the system fail? And what I found was that he not only was a sex offender, but you know he, he had substance and alcohol abuse issues and he had impulse control problems. He tried to commit suicide when he was nine and 10. And again, recently during the time that Amber, right before Amber had gone missing and afterwards, he kept trying to kill himself essentially with this, you know, running into things in the car. So he was deeply troubled. His mother had been raped. His mother had been molested. He was having sex with his aunt. I mean, it was that his father was mentally ill. I mean, it was just, he had no chance from the very beginnings. You know, and I wrote, I wrote it that way. So he's a three-dimensional person. What he did was horrible. I'm not trying to excuse it or rationalize it, but I just wanted people to understand, you know, his girlfriends that he'd had in the past had no idea. His mother had no idea who, who he really was. And I think because she couldn't see it because of what she'd gone through. So, I mean, I, I told that story. I was as sensitive as I could to the families. I, I told their stories based on, on what they'd said in the public domain on TV. And there was plenty of that. So you couldn't even tell that I hadn't interviewed them. Except right before, right when the book came out, Amber's mother decided she was going to stir up trouble and basically conducted a, a campaign against me, attacking me personally and professionally for writing this book, as if I had never given them the chance to talk to me and as if they had told me from the beginning not to write it, none of which was true. So I just basically, you know, I just said, well, they're grieving and they're mourning and I'm not, you know, this isn't a fight I want to win. I'm just going to try to be as gracious as possible, tell them I'm sorry that this book hurts them, but it's not just their story. It, nobody owns these stories and it would have been nice if I had had, you know, their blessing, but they didn't tell me from the very beginning not to write it either. So it was I thought kind of disingenuous of them to come out once the book was out and, and make this whole thing. But that's what made it so controversial was that um, the media loves to cover conflict. And so she showed up at my first book signing at a Barnes and Noble in Mira Mesa. There were five TV cameras who covered the whole thing. And she marched in with the women in orange t-shirts in the middle of my book signing talk. And I let her, I let her talk, I let her speak, and it was fine. But the media wanted to make it into a battle. I, I actually, there was a whole lot of back and forth also in the, you know, in the media covered it. When you look at the comment section underneath, we used to have those, I don't think they have them anymore. There were people who were attacking me, um, but there were a lot of people who came out and said, look, this is a First Amendment thing. She's trying to do something good. She was very sensitive in the way the book was written. And the people who were attacking me had not even read the book or picked up the book or looked at the book. They were trying to support this campaign about the book existing at all. So there was this one star campaign on Amazon, which is not what it's for. And they basically tried to tank the book, but what they ended up doing is helping me sell it and get the word out. I was on the top 
news story on every single channel that night. <laughs> you know, it didn't, it didn't work. Yeah. Well, I can understand, of course, with the media flames and fires, how basically yeah. that would create a controversy. But, you know, given what the media does, you've been around the block a few times with the media. It seems to me you've done probably what more than 200 media appearances on a variety of episodes of uh, network and local between, you know, yeah. network shows like 2020 people right. magazine investigates crime watch daily. You've actually been as far as Australia's world news. You've been on Nancy Grace. So you are also a TV crime commentator, right? So it isn't like you've been shy of the media. Well, and I come from the media. And so I was, you know, I was not thrilled with the way they covered that. I didn't think they did a good job. They, you know, they led with, oh, the, the wronged parents when in fact, you know, that wasn't really what was happening. <laughs> But I got more speaking engagements due to that whole controversy than any other book. I mean, I've been asked to speak at conferences to talk to authors, aspiring authors, about how, how to handle controversy and, and what to do. Because, like I said, I just, you know, I didn't fight with them. I just tried to remain as gracious as possible and explain my intentions were good for writing the book and that I was just trying to highlight the flaws in the system. And, and I said, hey, you know what? If this is what it took to get the anger going, then let's redirect that anger to fixing what's wrong with the system. Because I'm, you know, don't shoot the messenger. But there were a number of other issues that I found as well with the correctional system and the uh, state mental health system, the state parole system, state correctional system, they all screwed up in this yeah. case. Again, I'm bringing in my governmental background and covering flaws in the system. And, and so that's partly also what made the book meatier. So, you know, Chelsea's law was passed. Nathan Fletcher, who I think generally does a pretty good job. I like what he's doing as county supervisor right now, um, pushing for safety with the pandemic and everything. But, you know, he put this law together, Chelsea's Law, and basically I looked into it and, it, you know, it's a lot of sausage making and a lot of stuff that it was supposed to do didn't get funded. And so I covered all that in the book. Good. Good for you. And as far as a variety of your TV commentary work and your TV crime, you've been on like what? Fans would recognize you from numerous shows on Netflix, Investigation yeah, Discovery, always... HLN, Reels, Oxygen, my gosh, right. AE. A and E. I mean, you've been all over the place and as a TV crime commentator, but do your stories get picked up as far as where I've even seen in your own what we call the IMDV, the International you know, Database of Movie and Television Credits? You've been on screen not only as a commentator, but you've been involved in a variety of films and television series where they actually bring you on as yourself, right? Right. And so I get interviewed a lot. They ask for my opinion and I don't ever give my opinion. I give interpretation and analysis and background from my research on these cases. They also bring me in sometimes to talk about cases that I didn't cover personally, but I'll do, you know, they'll give me some stuff to read and then they ask for me to talk about whatever it is that they're, they're doing. I enjoy doing that. It was really scary for me at first because when you're a newspaper writer, you're used to going incognito. You go to a meeting and you can sit in the back of the room and hopefully people don't know who you are. So that's over. <laughs> yeah. Well, what about the, when these production companies ask you to come on as yourself? Has any of the television or film companies come to you and said, gee, we love your work or we love your books. We'd like to just pick up the actual title and, and develop that as a film in its own right. Or is any of that in the works? I'm working on it. As we speak, I'm working on it. I've got some people who are interested in optioning a couple of my books. And that's happened before. It takes, 
it, it always takes a lot to get it to actually happen. I had a lot of interest in Poison Love. I had a lot of interest in Twisted Triangle. I've had interest from producers in a number of my books, but it just, it takes a lot to get it all, all the ducks in a row and, you know, everything lined up. But right yeah. now I do have some people who are interested in who are reading books now. So, and shopping books and pitching. And I had a producer approach me, um, wanted to make a limited series based around me. You know, do you have a cold case? And they tried to pitch that to Netflix and it's been happening. It just hasn't come to fruition yet, but I'm still, I'm hoping that 2021 is, it's going to happen because we need something good after this year, boy. <laughs> yeah. I think everybody's hoping for a much, much, better 2021 than anything that we've seen this past year for sure. So coming up the end of April of 2021, Death on Ocean Boulevard inside the Coronado Mansion case on the new book coming out. Is there anything insightful without giving any spoilers? Let's put it this way. I had the whole book written. I had a couple weeks until my deadline. And then suddenly Jonah Shackney, who is the wealthy boyfriend who owned the Spreckles Mansion where Rebecca Zahau was found hanging naked, bound, and gag? He decided he would talk to me for the book. So we ended up doing eight interviews, lengthy interviews, and I had to rewrite a lot of the book because he hasn't talked to anybody before. So he briefly, he gave a very short, limited, conditional interview to 2020, but they didn't use that much. He hasn't talked to anyone else. And, and I think his, his view of her is important. I also interviewed an ex-boyfriend of hers, Michael Berger, who was living with her briefly when she, he thought she was abducted because she disappeared and that was the story she told him. So I interviewed him at length as well. So there's a lot in this book that has not come out before. There's a lot of details. I have the sheriff's investigative file and only pieces of that have come out at trial. So there's a lot in this book that people won't know that they will be learning for the first time. And I'm really excited about it, and it's available for pre-order right now um, on Amazon if you want to get a discount. That's good to know. I'm sure listeners and readers will run to Amazon and go get that pre-order in play as <laughs> we so. as we speak. Caitlin, if people want to come get to know your work, I'm assuming they can certainly visit you at your website, which is www.caitlinrother.com. And as far as all of the books that are currently available, where would you best direct people to? Is it Amazon and your other typical bookstores, whether it be online or brick and mortar? If you want a signed copy, you can reach me through my website. I also like to recommend bookshop.org as opposed to Amazon because that's a system where indie bookstores, they need help. And my last resort would be Amazon just because they've taken over everything and they discount books and they're not as good for authors. <laughs> it's easier, it's cheaper sometimes, but I, I really like to support the independent books. Act local. Yes. Absolutely. Well, that's wonderful. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for your time today. And I know crime buffs will certainly be following you very deeply down the trail. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. 